0: Okay, if I could get your attention, we'll start. As you no doubt remember, we're studying the parables of Christ, and today's lesson is the prodigal son, who, if you've never owned a Bible, if you've never been to church, you've heard of the prodigal son, and some of us have one, right? And the amazing thing about that name, prodigal son, I always thought that meant lost or, you know, uh, a wild, you know, gone crazy person, but no. Actually, you look it up in the dictionary, and it means lavishly extravagant and wasteful. So it's really referring to the fact that he got all that money and then just wasted it. So there's a lot about this story that you may not know. I hope I can cover it. And the prodigal son Uh, also models what you might call self-destructive behavior he's kind of known for that i mean here's this guy who had it made and through his self-destructive behavior he gets in trouble self-destructive very much like lowell on this thing from wings (laughs) it went on for another 30 minutes but we don't have time (laughs) okay parable of the prodigal son now I can relate to this. I'm sure a lot of us have uh, things that happen in our life. Maybe we can kind of relate to this parable. Uh, And I don't know about you, but when I was in college especially, I was kind of out there and I longed for unrestrained extravagance and pleasure, you know, and excitement like a lot of 19-year-olds do. And when I was 19, my dad called me and he said, hey, I'm going to Las Vegas for a business convention. Do you want to go? I said, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And so for about the next two weeks until we went, I kind of fantasized about what it was going to be like. I'd never been there. You know, big gambling, dancing girls, all kinds of big stage production, free drinks, on and on and on. This is going to be the greatest, right? And so I i thought for sure, you know, I'd be able to win at gambling because I always won at the fraternity poker night, you know, and it's not much difference out there, is it? Uh, and so... I had all these fantasies, and, and we went out there, and I had worked the previous summer on a construction job, worked all, you know, three months in the hot sun, and it earned 500 bucks, and had it in a savings account, right? And I cashed it in and took that cash out there to Las Vegas, and uh, you can imagine what happened. You probably can go ahead and write out the rest of what happened, you know, and I uh before I came here I g- actually googled percentage of winners in Las Vegas on on Google I wish I'd had it then <laughs> 1% of the people actually win money in Las Vegas 1% God I mean that's just unbelievable yet we just keep going out there and running into the same thing over and over but I didn't know that at the time, I was just a foolish young lad. But after three days in Vegas, reality set in. Instead of pleasure and riches and excitement, I was sick, hungover, wiped out, no money, you know, couldn't wait to get home, just exhausted. And on the plane going back, you know, I was just kind of slumped in my seat, looked awful, and the, and the stewardess looked at me, started laughing. She said, you know, it's always the same. I've been doing this round trip from Las Vegas for a year now. It's always the same. Going out to Las Vegas, everybody's happy and dancing and excited. On the way back, everybody's just slumped over and a big wreck, you know, beat down, broke. So I asked my dad, you know, I started thinking about it and says, what was I thinking? You know, like we all do. And I said, how am I ever going to get all that money back? He said, you're not. And I said, well, why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you stop me? And he says, well, there's just some things you have to learn on your own <laughs> by experience, right? And the parable that we're looking at today is very much like that. Uh, we want that freedom and, and to have that excitement, and we have it in our mind how much fun it will be and how fulfilling it will be, whatever it is that we want to do. And so we we just go off, and we don't come back until we've had that experience that straightens us out. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said it really well about, about the whole human race, this attitude the whole human race has. Isaiah 53, 6, he says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. You know, just the image of the sheep kind of wandering off, you know, helpless and lost and defenseless. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And each has turned his own way. And I think that's God's view of the human race. (laughs) He looks down here at all these people running in every direction, chasing every dream and everything they think will bring them that uh, excitement and pleasure and fulfillment. And of course, it's elusive. And they never find it on their own. And so that's the story of uh, Luke 15, the prodigal son. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 15. And in this chapter, Luke 15 is really a trilogy. There's three parables in Luke 15, and all three of them are about what you might call the lost and the found. The lost and the found. Three parables there in Luke 15. But before we get into it, one of the most important things in studying the parables, if you remember, what is that? To find out what provoked the parable. What issue or what question or what complaint was there that Jesus answered with these awesome stories. And and why did he teach in these parables, these awesome stories? I th- I find it very interesting what Jesus told his disciples that the people who really wanted to know, who were really seeking, who who were believers would understand, who would find out. Be sure be diligent to find out the meaning of these parables, but the unbelievers who weren't really interested, who were just there for other reasons, Would just kind of go away shaking their head not knowing what he was talking about and you go Why wouldn't he want them to know well actually, you know, it was just out there to be found out or to understand but what he was saying is He had had arguments over and over with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those religious leaders so this was a brilliant move to be able to Explain spiritual truth that they didn't understand he tell a natural worldly story they did understand to explain spiritual truth they didn't understand and it would be without argument for the first time he'd be able to teach and the religious leaders wouldn't get to argue with him or interrupt him or stop him and so he'd tell these great stories and they had no idea what he was talking about but his disciples and the believers would go I think I understand that and they would come to him and say now explain that a little further and then he would of course, uh, elaborate on it, and so it was. A, it was a great tool for Jesus to teach the parables. So, what's the problem? What is the question that provoked the parable? If you look at chapter 15, verse one and two, it's right there to be seen. Uh, Jesus had been making himself accessible to everybody, especially the known. What was called the known sinners, the tax gatherers, the harlots. Uh, the people you know that were involved in a lot of behavior that the, the pious and the self-righteous would never have anything to do with, and they were amazed because they did not allow the sinners, known sinners, quote, to come to the synagogues or to come to the temple. They were ostracized, right? And yet Jesus gave them full access to Himself and His ministry, and He reached out. To the known sinners, in fact. And so in in verse 1 and 2 there in chapter 15, what do you see? Jesus is having relationship with these known sinners and he is eating with them. And so the Pharisees begin to grumble like, what the heck? I thought this guy was supposed to be a holy man, a religious leader. What's he doing hanging around with these people? Look at verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Can you believe it? And obviously, they didn't understand his purpose. Jesus gave his purpose statement all through the Gospels. Uh, Luke 19:10. Jesus says, I came, the reason I'm here, the reason God sent me, is to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what I'm all about. 1 Timothy, Uh, Paul explains that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And among them, I am even the foremost of all. So Paul's saying, I needed him more than anybody. And that's why Jesus came. And so the parables of Luke 15 were given to explain and justify Christ's outreach to lost sinners. His relationship to them and, and why he spent so much time with them, made himself available to them. And so, in answer to what they were grumbling, verse 3 says, and he told them this parable. And so, he tells this great story that has an unbelievable amount of truth in it, and he does it in such a way they can't argue with him. It's great. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost even one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And so obviously, you know, if you're a shepherd keeping sheep and one of them wanders off, you go get it and bring it back. And that's his point. So I also think it's hilarious, just like Isaiah, that lost sheep are a great metaphor for humanity, for the human race. And why is that? Why do they make such a good comparison? Oh, maybe it's because they're defenseless. (laughs) Have no sense at all. Can't do things for themselves. They're easily confused and they're easily misled. Doesn't that amaze you, the way the human race wanders off behind all these false teachers and these crazy uh, people that tell them all this nutty stuff? I mean, it's amazing. So sheep make a great comparison. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been to the sheep fights? No? (laughs) No? Have you ever been to the sheep races and seen the sheep racing? How about, have you gone to the circus and seen the trained sheep perform? No, sheep can't do anything. So they make a great comparison to the human race. Uh, And so uh, the shepherd goes after it and finds it. And look what he does when when he finds it. He finds it, he rejoices. And this, is, of course, is a picture of the way God sees the human race. They wander off, and he wants them to come back. And when they're found, when, he, when they come back, he rejoices. He's happy about it. Uh, and so you see, he even calls his friends in verse 6 and has a party, rejoice with me. And in verse 7, he explains specifically what he's talking about. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I I bet you when he said that, he looked right at the Pharisees. Because what he's talking about, not not actually righteous, but self-righteous. People who think of themselves as righteous, like the Pharisees did. You people will never come to your Savior, he's saying, because you don't know you need a Savior. You think you got it all together yourself. You're self-righteous, so you don't need a Savior. I didn't come for you. I came for the people who know that they're sinners and come back humbly seeking a Savior. And so then he tells a second parable about the woman who lost a coin. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it? Now, this isn't as goofy as you might think, because back in those days, they didn't have electricity. (laughs) They didn't have the illumination we have. And they also had dirt floors. So if you dropped a coin somewhere in the house, it'd be down in the dirt, and you wouldn't be able to see at night. And so you'd have to get the lamp and get down you know, and look for it diligently to find it. And it's just like the first parable. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then verse 11 is where he begins the parable that you're all familiar with that we call the prodigal son. And once again, it's amazing it doesn't call itself the prodigal son. Look, look what he basically says. A certain man had two sons. So it, this is the parable of the two sons. And further than that, it's really more about the father than it is the sons. What is the father's relationship to the sons? How does the father view these two sinful sons of his? That's what it's really about. Now, this parable has been known and loved by everybody for 2,000 years. I looked up all the famous theologians and what they said, what they thought about this parable. I'll give you just a few quotes. One said, it is the fullest and most instructive of all the parables. Another one said, it's the gospel within the gospel of Luke. It's the greatest short story ever written. It is a gem of storytelling. It is artistically perfect. Everybody loves this story. They really do. And it, it completes that trilogy, except it now switches you over to the other side. The first two parables, what did they do? They, they were focused on the searching of the, of the shepherd, uh, while the father in this parable actually waits for the, for the son, the lost son, to come back. And so the father, his attitude and his relationship with the sons is what's, on, what's in view on this third parable. So uh, it's, it's the same idea, the parable of the lost and found, but just from a different point of view. And it also explains human nature, you see. It's, a, it's an example or explains the human condition of being lost clearly and you see in this parable uh, the prodigal goes through the entire cycle uh, that human beings go through the rebellion I want to be free I want nobody tells me what to do I want to go chasing my dream and then they leave to do that and then you see the foolish living and then they come to her senses he repents and he returns to the father a whole cycle you know 360 degrees here Okay, But then there's a second part to this. That may be all you know of this parable. But there's really a parable within that parable. Part 2 begins in verse 25. We'll get to it in a minute. The oldest son is a part of this too. The oldest son. Not too many people recognize that there's a parable about him. Because he's, in a, he's also a sinner, but he's different from the younger son. The younger son is wild and rebellious. The older son is self-righteous, pious, does what he's supposed to do, reliable, see? But we're going to see he also needs the love of the father. And the father is also waiting for that relationship to be repaired at the end of the story. So it's almost like there's two kinds of people in the human race. You can say there's two kinds of people and then a lot of people in between. One is the wild and crazy rebellious younger son that goes off, you know, and wild living. And then there's the older son who's way over here on the right, who does everything just right, you know. But he resents the father. He resents the younger brother. He has no love for anybody. And life is all about me, me. He says, I want a party. I want to be the patriarch. I want all the money, you know. And so, that's the two extremes of the human race. But what's clear is that both need the father in their life. They both need that loving relationship with the father. So, let's look at, at the rest of it. Um, the, the father owned, obviously, quite a bit of property and... Uh, the younger son comes to him. And of course, the the audience that Jesus is talking to, they would understand this parable because they would understand the, uh, the the inheritance laws and traditions of Israel in the first century, which is that the older son, when the father dies, the older son would become the patriarch and he would get a double share of the estate. And so you could look at if there was two sons, the younger son would get a third of the estate and the older son would get two-thirds and he'd he'd run the family business. Well, the younger son didn't like the idea of that. He says, I want to live it up while I'm young and can enjoy it. I don't want to wait for my father to die. I want it now. And I'm sure not going to hang around here and work for that obnoxious brother of mine. So he comes to the father in verse uh, 12 and says, Father, give me the share of the estate that that's, falls to me, that will fall to me in the future. And that is an outrageous request. Think about that. If, you're, if one of your children came to you and said, you know, I, I really wish you'd go ahead and die so I could get all my money. <laughs> I mean, that's the last thing a parent wants to hear, you know. And it just shows no regard for the father. And so naturally we expect, you know, what we would do would say, no way, you little brat. Now get back out there to work, you know. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does at all. What does he do? He goes ahead. We're not giving any tells. He just says he went ahead and he probably sold off a lot of their property and gave the money to the sons right then. Why would he do this? And I'm sure the audience there that Jesus was talking to were going, why would the father do that? What was he thinking? But just like I alluded to earlier when I said, why didn't you stop me? Why would you let me do this? Some things have to be learned by experience. There was no way that you were going to talk that younger son out of wanting to leave, of wanting his freedom. You, you couldn't do it. He had to find out the hard way by experience, that that isn't going to work. And so the father wisely let him go. And you know what? That's very much like the way God deals with the human race. In Genesis 3 and many New Testament passages like Romans 8, it says, or excuse me, Romans 1, it says, when man rebelled against God and went his own way and wouldn't worship God, but instead worshiped the creation that God made, You know what God, it says God did. Paul writes God did. Let them go. Turned them over. That's that's what you want to do? Go to it. Let's see how that works out. (laughs) Now, if you took high school history, you know it didn't work out too good. There's been nothing but wars and murder and depravity and all kinds of evil ever since then. And so we have found out That that doesn't work. A life without meaning and purpose, a life without the God who made us to have a loving relationship with Him doesn't work. It's futility. There's no fulfillment, there's no meaning, and there's no purpose. And so the father lets the son go knowing maybe if he goes out and finds out how bad that is out there, he'll come back. And when he comes back, his attitude will be different. So he lets him go, gives him the money, lets him go. So look what happens. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. So he, get, he goes as far away as he can. Interesting story. Uh, when our oldest daughter was graduated from high school, we said, Where do you want to go to college? She said, I either want to go to the University of Maine or the University of Washington. (laughs) How did you pick those? Because they're as far away from you as you can get. So she went away to college. Uh, Amazingly enough, though, very much like the prodigal, after two years, she calls back and said, I'd like to transfer to SMU. And live at home. <laughs> and actually eat decent food and not have a roommate that steals my clothes and messes up the apartment who has an obnoxious boyfriend. Isn't that amazing? She had to find that out for herself. And that's exactly what I think the father's doing. So not many days later, he goes off to this far distant country where he thinks he's going to have such a good time. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. So, you know, in my mind, it was just like my Vegas trip. (laughs) He goes to Vegas, you know, and he buys himself a bunch of fancy jewelry and and buys a, you know, big Cadillac convertible. And he walks in the casino with a girl in each arm, you know, and starts throwing money around. And it wasn't long before that's all gone. Uh, Proving that, what's that proverb? A fool and his money is welcome everywhere. Come on in. (laughs) We love guys like you. Right? And so all his money's gone. And there's going to be two problems, two huge problems, two disasters, which is no money. He's broke. He's dried up. But also the land dries up. And in an agricultural community and and, uh, economy, That means complete financial depression when there's a famine. So now he's got no money and there's no jobs available. That's bad. No job, no money, no family, no food, no friends, and no help. (laughs) What's he going to do? He began to be in great need at the end of verse 14. And he went and attached himself. He finally found a Gentile Pig farmer to work for. Now, Jesus is great at finding these outrageous extremes to further dramatize the story. You know, because to a Jew in first century Israel, the worst imaginable thing is to work on a pig farm. And if that's not bad enough, it gets worse. He's not even making enough to feed himself decent food. So he gets down and eats with the pigs. Now that's hungry. Extreme example Jesus is making. And thus he's proving how serious, the seriousness of sin. This is serious business. It's self-destructive. It's not going to go well. It's your worst nightmare. So in the depths of despair, he's at the very bottom he finds out the party has become a prison. And that saying came true. You, you may have heard this before. It didn't come from me, but I'm just quoting it from someone else. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. Then it keeps you there longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. It's bad stuff. And he gets right to the very bottom of the barrel. And look what happens in verse 17. This is what you want all your children to do. (laughs) He came to his senses. That's the first step. There's, There's a process of recovery for him and I think for everyone. Number one is you finally come to your senses. The light bulb comes on, you get it figured out. This is not where fulfillment is. This kind of living does not work, does not end well. He comes to his senses. Secondly, he decides to return, to come back, to go back to the Father. That's where I belong. That's where I should be. Thirdly, he confesses his sin. I mean, he comes back without excuses, without any entitlement, and says, I messed up. He confesses. No excuses. Just, I blew it. And then, of course, he repents. He changes his mind about everything. And he asks for forgiveness. And then you have the reconciliation with the Father. So verse 17, he came to his senses, and he says to himself, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? Everybody at home had plenty to eat and was well treated by my father. What am I doing in this far land? alienated from my father. Again, very much like the human race. At some point, it should wake up and go, you know, God has got such a great plan for me, has sent his son in the world to save me. God loves me, wants the best for me, but here I am over here getting in all this trouble, living my own way, and it's a big mess. And if you come to your senses and figure that out, And humble yourself, and that's hard to do, isn't it? Nobody wants to be humble. Nobody wants humiliation. But in his case, it's the best thing that ever happened to him. So that he could come back with his hat in his hand and say, Father, I don't deserve anything. And if you'll give me even the right to work somewhere on the homestead so I can at least get something to eat, I'll, I'm here to come back. Please forgive me. And so he's, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's rehearsing like that. Verse 18, he says, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to my father and, and I'm going to confess and tell him I'm not worthy. Just make me a hired man. And then in verse 20, to his surprise, and, and here we are thinking, well, you'll be lucky if he keeps, takes you back, you bum. You know, Jesus' audience is thinking that. Well, of course he won't take you back. As bad as you are, you wasted all of his money? You ingrate? Showed such contempt for your father? Why should he take you back? That's what the Pharisees are probably thinking. But the son, he's thinking that too, but look what happens. Verse 20. He got up and came to his father. So he walks all the way back. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father's out there on the road looking for the lost son, hoping that he'll come back. Amazing. His father wanted him to come back so bad and was out there looking for him. And when he saw him, he ran and embraced him and kissed him. He still loves him. He still wants him back. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's going to finish that, but the father interrupts him. Much to his surprise. The father says, stop right there. And to the servants, quickly, bring the sandals and the robe and the ring, and put it on him. Now, what, what was that all about? Well, all those articles signified that he was part of the family. A signet ring had the family crest or symbol on it so that when you signed documents and stuff, you were signing it for the family. You'd dip it in wax and put that in the wax, and it, you, you'd have that. Uh, the sandals, all the hired people, the servants you know, p- were barefoot, But he gave him the father's sandals. The father's robe was given to him. So he's back in the family. The father has welcomed him back with full privileges and authority in the family. Amazing. He doesn't deserve it. But out of the father's gracious, loving heart, he's given it to him. So he says, bring out the best robe. Put it on the ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. And one more thing, let's have a party. He says, bring out the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Now, typically, they had at least one calf that they were fattening up for some big party way out in the future. And so he says, let's take that calf, and this will be the party that we plan for. And so he sends the servants off to do that, and he explains why they're going to have a party in verse 24. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Have you ever heard the song Amazing Grace? Does this sound anyways? I think John Newton read this. Pretty sure he did before he wrote that song about himself. He related to the prodigal son completely. And, you know, when you think about all the passages in the New Testament about being born again, born spiritually, this is what he's talking about. You were dead in your sin. Now you're alive spiritually. You're spiritually alive. You're a new person. You're back. That's the way God looks at you when you come back. He forgives you and welcomes you lovingly. You're back. You're alive. You're found. Now, verse 25 is that second parable. It's the second part of this story that involves the older son. Because while this scene's been playing out with the younger son, the older son's out there doing what he's supposed to do. He's out there working in the fields. He's responsible. He's responsible. Now we find out what his reaction is and what his part of the story is. The older son has a completely different reaction than the father. This, of course, is a a pivot in this action. Uh, The father had such compassion that the older son doesn't have that at all. Just the opposite. He gets angry. Verse 25, his older son was in the field. When he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Heard all this. Wait a minute. There's a party and I didn't know about it? There's a party, and I'm not involved. It's not for me. I'm not invited. So he's all anxious about it and upset. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. What's going on in there? Why, why is this party going on? And the servant says to him, Your brother has come back, and your father's throwing a party for him. Your, your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound and the older brother got angry what he's outraged now he is not at all happy to see the younger son but you know who's even more unhappy the fattened calf he got the worst part of this deal by far So he's he's not happy at all. He became angry and was not willing to go in. So in the parable, he stays outside the house as well. He is, in a a sense, alienated from the Father as well. Now let me give you a disclaimer here. Being a hardworking, dutiful, religious, church-going person is a good thing. We're not saying that it's not. It's a good thing. But what we're going to see in this older brother is that he's unloving, he's resentful, and everything's about me. And so Jesus is drawing a comparison, whether they know it or not, Jesus is drawing a comparison of this older brother to the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. And if they get it, they'll understand that the older brother also needs the love of the father, needs the relationship with the father. And in the same way, they're, even though they're super religious, they also need the love of God the father that's shown to them through Jesus the son. Okay? So he becomes angry and he's not willing to go in. And so what does the father do? did the same thing that he did for the younger son. He goes out to them. He takes the initiative. He loves him that much. He goes out to the older brother and began entreating him. You know what entreating means? Begging. Please come in. But the older son answered and said, no way. Look. I mean, this isn't a nice way to talk to your father. Look, you. I'm going to tell you how the cow ate the cabbage. For so many years, I I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a commandment of yours, and yet you have never given me a party. Now, which one of those statements do you think is true? I'm going to guess none of them. Nobody perfectly serves the Father, right? Nobody perfectly keeps all the commandments. We're not capable of that. And certainly you can just imagine how many parties this guy had had growing up. His father obviously loves him. He's had plenty of parties. But this is his resentment, you know. You've never thrown me a party. You've never let me be married with my friends. But when this bum, this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots. Naturally, he just thinks the worst. Of course, he's probably right. You killed the fattened calf for him. You threw a party for him. So the self-righteous, feeling superior, proud, resentful, the older son will not come in with the father. He wants to stay outside, alienated from the father as well. And as I said, the object of the parable, one one of it is to explain the relationship of God to those sinners that the Pharisees were grumbling about, but also to draw a comparison of the older brother to the Pharisees, to place the Pharisees and themselves in the category of sinners also. You're complaining about them being sinners? You're sinners too. You think they need help? So do you. Everybody needs Jesus. It it just comes down to that. So clearly, this guy, the older son, like the younger son, needs God's grace, as we all do. We all need God's grace. Whether we're way over here with the older brother, more like the older brother, or more like the younger brother, we all need God's grace. When you look at the older brother's sins, you can see hypocrisy. You can see self-glory. It's all about me. Resentment unloving, right? So he needs help as well. The parable ends with the father pleading with the older son, but it doesn't tell us what happens. He said to him, My child, the father tells the older son, You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. You know what he just said? He said, you got no reason to be angry. you got no reason to say those things. So he's just, the father is just making it clear that everything the older son said was wrong. You got no reason to complain. But on the other hand, your son's come back. Your, my son, your younger brother's come back, and so we had to have a party and rejoice. To me, you know what that said? We think, oh, the party's for, like the older brother said, for that younger son. It sounds like to me the father's saying, no, I'm having a party because I'm rejoicing. That my son was lost, but now found. The parties, you remember the two parables before? What happened? Rejoicing in heaven. This isn't a party so much for the younger brother as it is the father rejoicing. And having a party. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and has lost and has been found. Let me say in conclusion, I, I saw a, a neat story It's supposed to be true about a father whose only son went off back in the 60s to Vietnam and got killed, and his buddy there had been kind of an amateur artist and had drawn a picture of the man's son, so when he came back, he gave that to the father, and it wasn't particularly you know, a great piece of art or anything, but The father treasured having this likeness of his son to remember him by. And the father was very wealthy and had all kinds of very expensive art, had a great art collection. And when the father died without an heir, they went to auction off his estate. And all these art dealers and experts gathered to bid on all these priceless works of art. And so the auctioneer stands up and says, Okay, the first one we're going to do is the picture of the son. And so he holds it up and he said, Do I have a bid on this picture? Nobody bid. Nobody wanted that. Except the guy, the, the soldier who had been with his son, who had painted it, said, I'll buy it back for $20. And the guy says, Once, twice sold this guy for $20. And then he says, Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to tell you that according to the will that the Father made, all these other paintings go to this man as well. Because it was my desire that whoever wanted my son would get it all. And, of course, God is saying the same thing to us. Whoever chooses my son, Jesus Christ, receives all that I have to give you. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these wonderful stories and I pray, Lord, that we could relate to them, apply them to our life and realize, Lord, that we need to be coming to you in all humility on a regular basis confessing our sin and just praising you for the mercy and grace that you've shown us. Thank you, Lord, for your Son who came into the world to die for us. Thank you for All the promises we have because of him. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.